verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city. Spend a year there. Carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Amen. This is God's word. What is your life? You ever stop to consider that question? What is your life? What does it consist of? What does it look like even in the days ahead? What does your calendar look like? Whether it's hanging on your your kitchen wall or whether it's in your iPhone or whatever. What What does your calendar look like? What does your bank balance look like? What does your house look like? What is your life? Think about it like this. Philip. Would you do me a favor? Would you hold that for me? Imagine this is eternity. It's not. (laughs) Where on this would you say your life is? If this is, I know eternity doesn't have beginning and end, but it's an illustration, okay? Where is the span of your life if this is what marks eternity? Is it here? I mean, is it here? No one's saying yes. Is it here? I mean, is it, is it significant enough to be that big in line with eternity, in comparison with eternity, or is it as small and insignificant as that tiny little blot of ink on that piece of string? Well, I'll tell you, it's less than that. That's being generous. Thank you, brother. You can just pop it down. It's less than that. Here's the problem. People in the world, and even Christians, can make the mistake of living life as if the dot was all that mattered. We spend our time, and we use the resources that God has given us, and we make here and now a destination rather than a preparation for what is to come when we die. What is your life? I think what James is trying to say to us here, in in, in these two paragraphs together, is quite simple. I think he's trying to say it is 
a sinful arrogance to live life without any regard for God. It is a sinful arrogance to live life without any regard for God, where you live life as if you are in control and where you live life as if it's all about you. This is what I think James is dealing with in these two passages. So in, uh, first of all, in verses 13 to 17, we think that we are in control. We live as if we're in control. Now, don't misunderstand this from the, from the off. James is not saying that it's wrong to plan ahead, uh, whether it's in business, as, as seems to be the focus here, or whether it's in any other area of life. The example that he uses in verse 13 uh, shows us a businessman who are living, a businessman who is living as if he is a master of his own life. He seems to be deciding where he's going to go, when he's going to go, and how long he's going to stay. Today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. All as if time is at their disposal. All as if they are in control. Today, maybe tomorrow, hey, it's up to me. This city, or, or maybe that city. All I have to do is decide and apply myself to it, and then something will happen. I will make profit. Now the problem is not in planning. James is not critiquing planning here. It's not wrong to plan ahead. The problem is... The attitude that undergirds that planning. That we often think we are masters of our own lives, including our future. And I wonder if you think that way. Or if you maybe realize that you don't tend to think that way, what does your life tell you you actually do? Do we find ourselves presuming to have that life expectancy of 80.1 years, as UK statisticians suggest? Do we presume to be in control of our life at every turn, and how it all turns out is entirely contingent on us and decisions that we make? I mean, how many of us, even in this past month, have experienced something that has served to show us why we should actually be humble? When it comes to thinking about our future. Well in our text today James addresses that presumption that we're in control in 13 to 17 and tells us there are two things that we tend to overlook when we boast and brag in that respect. First of all we overlook our ignorance. Look with me at verse 14. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. It's ironic isn't it? The man who seems so confident that he's going to do something next year doesn't even know what will happen the next day. And we don't know what tomorrow will bring. God does not give us that knowledge. Three weeks ago, Fabrice Muamba walked out onto the pitch at White Hart Lane. No doubt, he fully expected to finish the game and go home to his family. In all likelihood, he fully expected to finish the season and go off for a nice summer holiday. But before half time in that game, he had collapsed with a massive heart attack and his heart stopped. And the media coverage that followed with the Pray for Muamba campaign that, 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 that grew 
on Facebook and Twitter and throughout the, the newspapers of this land reveal just how unnerved people were by this man who seemingly in, in the prime of fitness, who is the estimation of many. He is a professional footballer. How many young boys dream about that? And here he is needing a defibrillator to get his heart going again three times. What is your life? Muamba serves as a reminder that we cannot overlook our ignorance concerning what tomorrow may bring. But he also shows us that we should not overlook our frailty as human beings either. That's the second thing. What is your life? James says in verse 14. Maybe you're here today, you're not a Christian. I wonder if you've considered that question. What is your life? What are the kind of things that you presume to be true? A given that you're going to grow to a ripe old age? That you're going to achieve everything that you set out to achieve? That life is in your hands? Human beings have created the technology to conquer many things. Diseases that once inflicted people, humanity. Some of them have disappeared, but we haven't got anything close to stopping us dying. It's a great leveler, isn't it? I mean, even today in this city, someone is sitting beside someone's bedside watching the life of a loved one slip away. Someone today in this city woke up and wept because the person they woke up to ye beside yesterday wasn't there today. We've all experienced this. Death hits us hard. It surrounds us every day in all sorts of ways. The bouquet that wilts, the milk that goes sour because it's been left out on the counter all night. All these things should just serve as little reminders for, the, for us that this is not all there is, that, that life ends. I'm not trying to be morbid here today, but I am trying to use the force of what James is saying to let you feel it. How many of us have experienced either the death of a loved one, whether that was unexpected or not? We feel it, don't we? And it's sad. It's devastating. I lost a good friend that I led to the Lord a number of years ago. He didn't come into work one morning. Uh, he had had a massive bleed in his brain as he was getting ready for work that morning. He was 23. Praise God, he knew the Lord Jesus Christ and he is with him in glory. The same confidence cannot be said of those who do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is your life? If you're here today, you're not a Christian, what is your life? Where are you banking your hope? Is it in the stuff that wastes away here? Or is it in the imperishable promise of Jesus Christ who invites us to come and believe in him and who grants us a life that is by its very definition eternal? Confess your sin and believe in him. It's what I would encourage you to do today. See what James says. You are a mist. You're as insubstantial as water vapor. Like steam coming from your kettle. There one minute, gone the next. Appears for a little while, it's transient, vanishes, soon gone from sight. What a sobering truth to consider. 
And James is serving all of this up for us to show us how misguided we are then when we presume to be the masters of our own lives. That when in pride and arrogance we decide, well, today or tomorrow, it's up to me. I'm going to go to this city or that city. To do that with the wrong attitude is sinful. We're not in control. God is in control. That's the second thing that he shows us. Uh, In verse 15, you ought to say instead, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. We are to humbly, with our attitudes, acknowledge God's sovereignty. And very often we associate the sovereignty of God with theological debates. But what James is doing for us right here is telling us that it is a daily matter, a practical matter of daily importance. For every single one of us, it is a a fact that affects every single day. That every day God is working out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, as Ephesians 1.11 tells us. That every day... As we make plans in our hearts, it is the Lord, as Proverbs 16.9 says, who determines our steps. That every day God is working together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, as Romans 8.28 tells us. We are not in control. God is in control. And every day we get the opportunity to choose between the fantasy land in which we think we're in control and the real world in which God is in control. And to help us steer clear of that sinful arrogance by which we think we're in control, James says you ought to say it is the Lord's will. That means that every time we come to a decision, when it comes to planning for the future, whether as an individual, a family, or as a church, we acknowledge that it's good to make plans on the basis of the wisdom of God that is ours in Scripture And the presence of God that is ours in his Holy Spirit who lives in us. But that those plans are made provisionally. They are always subject to the Lord's will. Yet not my will, Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. Your will be done. So that's the kind of attitude we're supposed to have. Humbly acknowledge God's sovereignty. And this is the action that we're supposed to enact humbly speak of his sovereignty you ought to say it is the lord's will now utilizing this tool acts as a very helpful reminder of the fact that we are not in control even when it comes to our planning and it serves as an expression of our humility and a repeated reminder for us it's an expression of trust paul spoke this way in acts 18:21 in ephesus he says i will come back if it is god's will To the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 4, he said, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills it. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not that we need to say Lord willing at the end of every sentence. Uh, Every time we talk about something that hints of something in the future, we don't need to say Lord willing. So if any of you are thinking, yes, I get to apply myself to that which I have longed to apply myself to for a long time, I am the Lord willing police. And I am going to pick everyone up who does not say Lord willing after a sin. That's not what we're saying here. We are instead to live with that attitude where we can rightly say things and repeat this as a reminder for us regularly, but not to get ourselves in a twist whenever it isn't said. Jesus didn't do that. Paul didn't do that. 
So we're not to be hard on ourselves when we say, see you later, and forget to say, Lord willing. Nevertheless, the warning's clear, isn't it? Uh, don't overlook this instruction. Don't presume to be in control of your own lives. Work hard. Make good choices. Plan ahead. But let everything be subject to the will of God. Let everything be provisional so that if your plans are so seemingly changed because of other circumstances, do not get angry. Do not get frustrated. But trust that God is doing something. I mean, the man who runs for his train, for example, and who gets there and finds out, that, wow, the train has broken down. I don't know. It's got a puncture. Or, <laughs> I know, okay, before. <laughs> you know, the man who's on the platform blowing his top, shouting at the train and shouting at the guard is a man who, who is not happy when his plans are interrupted. He's, by his anger and by his expression of disappointment, just showing, I'm in control. If I'm not where I need to be at this time, then I'm not going to be a happy bunny. But we're not in control. We make plans. We hope these good and gracious plans that we make in God's name will, will come to pass. But trust in him and his sovereignty, ultimately. We're not to overlook his instruction in this. That's the third thing he encourages us to do. Verse 16 reminds us that when we think about our lives and make plans with this arrogant disregard for God and his sovereignty, we effectively suggest that we are happily independent of God. And that's an arrogant evil. That's a boastful sin. Verse 17 says, anyone then who does not, who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. That's a striking verse, isn't it? I mean, I have a tendency to think, I don't do this, I don't do that, I find, and, and find some righteousness in that. It's a reason to pat myself on the back. But I look at verse 17, and any of those claims to righteousness just disappear for us. Because we not only sin when we do things that are wrong in God's sight, uh, we fail to do the right thing. And we're face to face again with our sinful condition. And that is also something that should humble us to realize that we must all rely not on any righteousness of our own when it comes to living to please God. But we can only have a righteousness when we trust in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The one who always did the Father's will who never left anything undone, even to the point of giving up his own life so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. It's sinful to live life as if we are in control and it's sinful to live life as if it's all about me. That's what James goes on to talk about in such stern ways in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, we think it's all about us. We live for the dot. We make the plans as if everything is just only and always about the dot. We invest our all in the dot, forgetting that there is eternity in view. And I think, though uh, that can be said of all people, in terms of pride and arrogance and living in happy independence 
uh, without God. I think that for those who in particular are wealthy, uh, there is a real tendency to live as if life is all about the pursuit of personal comfort and of maximizing personal pleasure, even at the expense of others. Because it's hard to be wealthy and humble at the same time. From the number of times that Jesus talks about wealth and the dangers of wealth in Scripture, we can see that. It was, I think it's about a quarter of his parables are about wealth. And I think this is why James speaks so strongly about this situation in chapter 5, calling on, in verse 1, the rich to weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon them. And here's what we see in this text. They hoard wealth for self-indulgence. Look with me, verse 3, the second half. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. And again, the irony in this is striking. The rich man accumulating wealth for himself that will ultimately prove worthless on that day of wrath that is to come. And the rich man accumulating stuff for personal comfort on earth that will, in fact, as this text says, cry out for his condemnation on judgment day. Do you see what James said in verse 3? You hoard stuff that actually condemns you. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. It's not a pretty picture. Ultimately, the things that you can accumulate if you accumulate them for personal comfort, personal wealth, and growing that without any regard for God whatsoever. These things can testify against you on judgment day for your condemnation. And these things can, the things that you have bought as a consumer, can consume you. Eat your flesh like fire. It's senseless self-indulgence in James's eyes. And you get the impression that James is not impressed. You have built up a bank account to such a level that it's bordering on irresponsible, he might say. You're buying things you don't even need. You've got 500 pound pieces of jewellery in your trinket box that you've only worn once in five years. And what's worse, you're so self-serving, you do not even share some of your wealth with those who are truly in need. You're like the man in Luke 12. A rich man who produced a good crop thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. An illustration of what many in our city are doing. An illustration of the dangers of the seductiveness of wealth that we ourselves still face. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Again, it comes down to attitude. It comes down to who you are rich towards. Are you rich towards self, James is asking, or are you rich towards God? 
Are you living life for this dot instead of, even as we were singing beforehand, and my soul finds rest in God alone, of that, that heavenly investment that we make as we sow our gifts and sow our resources and sow our money in this life? Are we living truly for eternity or are we living for the dot? We can hoard wealth for self-indulgence. It's a mistake. It's a prideful mistake of the wealthy. The second thing, the maximizing of wealth by unjust gain. Verse 4 says, they defraud their workers. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. So it's not only the things that they hold as valuable that are crying out against them, even the fact that they have ripped people off through unjust gain, failed to pay the wages so that they could have greater wealth, bigger homes, bigger reputations, bigger portfolios, can lead to the kind of ungodly behavior we see here. Rather than serving other people as we are called to do as part of, as the people of God, we can take advantage of them. What's more, verse 6 says, you have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. The selfish, self-indulgent accumulation of stuff and a self-centered refusal to care for others as they ought has been to the detriment of those who are wealthy. And the cries of the oppressed has reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. A title that is most often in scripture reserved for judgment. Our mistake in this is to often think, wow, those rich people are in for it, aren't they? <laughs> it was very helpful for me to see this, this week, the BBC posting on their website, where are you on the global pay average? <laughs> Anyone see that? Wow. I am in the top 4%. So 96% of the world earn less than I do. Wow. Now we can argue relativity. Fine, I get it. And I'm not trying to be heavy on this, any heavier than James is being on us. I think we're supposed to heed the warning and face the challenge. What are we doing what are we doing with all that God has given us? How are we living our lives? Are we living it as if it's all about me? Are we living it if it's, as if it's all about the dot, that personal comfort? Are we going to let wealth so entangle us that we will even proceed to unjust gain at the detriment of people who need stuff and need help and need clothes? I mean, we're providing food for moths in our wardrobes. I'm challenged massively by this, so don't think I'm standing up here as a, yeah, whatever. I, I feel it. This is hard. These rich people are convinced that they've lived the high life by eating choices of foods. But James hits them with the big one, doesn't he, in verse 6. You're, you're a fat cow. You're like a fat cow. Look at all the, it's like fat cows in a field who say, look at all this. I know cows don't talk. Look at all the, 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 the grass I have to eat. 
I take my pick. I'm going to have this patch and then I'm going to go over to this patch. And do you know what? See when I'm finished this part of the field? See that neighboring field? I'm going to eat that as well. I'm going to, and, and when I'm finished with that field, I'm going to come back here because this one will have grown again. All the while ignorant of the abattoir. You fatten yourselves for slaughter. When we live life as if it's all about me. Earthly comforts can only cushion people who put their hope and wealth to a sense. To, it, it just numbs them, anesthetizes people to the sense of urgency for their souls. And again, my non-Christian friend here today, I'm so glad you're here. You're very welcome. How does this sound to you? It might be unnerving, I anticipate. James delivers a message here that really is essentially the complete opposite of everything our advertising sells. People in our city today think that it is heaven to be wealthy, comfortable, well-fed, but in fact accumulating wealth and living a prideful, self-indulgent life, happily independent of God, is harmful to you and may in the end on the day of judgment be the end of you. Proverbs 11.4 says, Wealth is worthless on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Where is our hope? Again, in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Who died even for our covetousness. Who died even for the fact that we love money and stuff more than we loved him. That while we were still sinners, while we were still happily chewing the cud of whatever we chew on in our own lives, he died for our sins. So that we might be saved. So that we might be saved from the futility of this life, thinking it's all about us and so that we might truly recognize it's not about the here and now, it's not about us, it's about him. It's about the Lord Almighty and living for his glory and investing everything that he has given us as good stewards that we might not take advantage of other people, but that those people by our help might be the very ones who will be our crown and joy in glory because we told them the gospel and we made it possible for them to hear the gospel because we invested the gospel. We truly lived up to our mission to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. What is your life? See the hope that we have in the righteousness of our own lives who Though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. That we, through his poverty, might become truly rich. May we put our faith and trust in him. May we live life knowing that it's not about us. We're not in control, God is. Knowing that it's not about me, it's about him. Let's pray together. Lord, 
These are hard truths we're dealing with today. I pray that we would be convicted, that we would be humble before you. Help us not to live in a happy independence of who you are, of thinking that we are in control and believing that lie, of thinking that life is all about us and believing that lie, but help us truly to see that it's all about you. It's all about living for your glory. It's all about stewarding the things that you have given us so that more people may glorify you. And that in everything that we seek to do ahead, even as we plan ahead as individuals, as families, as a church, as we seek to do that which will help us better glorify you, let us make plans trusting that you're in control. Acknowledging if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. Help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.